Okay, tonight we're starting a two-part series. Each one is independent, but they obviously go together. Tonight we're going to be learning about the mystical nature of light, and next week's spiritual mystical teachings of Hanukkah. So tonight, obviously I'm hoping people will come for both, but uh, we're not going to talk a lot about Hanukkah tonight. But the obvious thing that we're going to learn about light <laughs> is that we'll learn next week probably the most important thing to learn about Hanukkah is that after you light your candles, to sit by them and meditate to them. This is a big, a big thing. All the Hasidic Rebbe's, this is like the greatest teaching of Hanukkah. Why? We have a tendency to light the candles, sing Maus Sur, start giving presents, get the latkes ready, and we lose the once-a-year opportunity to sit by these candles and absorb the infinite light of Hashem. So tonight we're going to learn about light on many, many different levels. But it's all geared for this. It's all geared that when we light the lights of Hanukkah, we'll appreciate the, the, the nature of light itself and its connection to the holiday. And the next week, obviously we're going to plug it into Hanukkah in a hundred ways. But this is, we'll call it the introduction to understanding the, the light of Hanukkah. You know, we, we light candles to inaugurate every single holiday. And we use candles at weddings, at funerals. Some, by some Hasidim, they light candles every single day for Shachri. And just so many other things. We go out of Shabbos with candles. But there's only one holiday that is actually about light. And that's Hanukkah. All the others, in a sense, use light, but Hanukkah is, is, is the holiday all about light. So that's our introduction to why we're learning about light. And the way we're going to do it is like this, is we're going to learn about light in the Torah. Then we're going to see that we're going to develop a certain paradox and mystery about light as, as written in, in the Torah. And then we're going to see that very same paradox and mystery mirrored in what modern science says about light. Then we're going to take both of those ideas from the Torah and science and we're going to look at the word for light, Aleph, Vav, Resh. We're going to see an amazing thing, how the letters of the word Or is exactly what Or is. And then we're going to take our meditative music break, where we're going to take what we've learned and try to integrate it to meditative music 
And the second part is we're going to go one step deeper and try to understand where the source of this paradox is coming from. Because we're going to talk about that there's a paradox of light in the Torah, there's a paradox of light in science. There's another chair here, and there's another chair over here. There's another chair over here. It's going to be like the Beit HaMikdash. We're going to we're going to get room for everyone. We're going to find room for everyone. <coughs> yeah. And there's these little benches around, these little, little chairs. Michael, you move down one, because there seems to be more ladies than men. Yeah, no problem. And we'll, we'll, we can put the ladies at the end there. Welcome everyone. We're just starting. Okay, and then the, the second part, you didn't miss anything though. The second part is we're going to delve into what the nature of the paradox is of light as written in Kabbalah and Hasidut. And then, God willing, if we have time, we're going to we're going to look at different manifestations of light. Hopefully, we'll have time. One is light, the intellect and meditation. The other one will be light in healing and light in speech. And everyone start davening. We get through all of that. Okay, and so I will, I will mention that um, on the table over there is a book called The Mystical Nature of Light that these teachings are coming from. And the most we can do, two hours is a long time, but um, I'm going to be saying a lot of things that could be explained a lot more. But I think it's more important to get through more material than like, just dwell on a few things. So I'm like going to open up all these different areas. And then, if you're interested, there are uh, books on the table that actually bought one, but I'll bring more next week. Okay, so we're going to start with what the Torah says about light. The first thing is, it's the first explicit creation. In the third verse of the Torah is the first time it says, Vayomer Elohim, that God said, let there be something, and there was something, is light. Vayomer Elohim, Yehi Or, Vayyehi Or. This is the first of what are called the ten sayings with which God created the world. So it's obvious that this is the first explicit creation. It's, it's like, it's cardinal. We're going to see that reflected in science. That it's not, it's, it's very, we'll call it mikuvan. Very appropriate that light is the first creation. And we'll point out next week that 
the word or is the... Um, no, 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 I'm good. Thank you so much. Is the 25th word of the Torah. And it just happens that Hanukkah is on the 25th of Kislev. Light is the 25th? Light is the 25th word of the Torah. But we're going to see from Rashi immediately the beginning of the paradox and the mystery of light because Rashi says this light was hidden away. <coughs> so uh, Rabbi Shlomo teaches all the time and Rabbi Ginsburg also that the first time that a word, a name or a concept appears in the Torah, <coughs> Rabbi Shlomo used to call it the headquarters. So in other words, if this is the first time that light appears, it's what's called the headquarters of, of light. So it's very significant that Rashi tells us, based on the Midrash, the Gemara, that this light was hidden away. We'll see the significance of that as we develop it. But we have our, a model here. Light is revealed and then is hidden away. When Moshe is born, it says that they saw that he was good. When he was born, in the Torah, it says he saw that he was good. So Rashi explains what does that mean. It says that the room filled up with light. Now there's a deep connection here because also the first time that the word tov appears, it's to describe light. So we're already told that, in a sense, the, the, the greatest good is God's light. But what happened to Moshe immediately? They hid him away. Remember, they hid him for three months until they couldn't be hidden anymore. Again, we could delve into each one of these, but I, I, I want to establish, a, a call it a paradigm, a model here. There is uh, a famous Gemara you've probably all heard. This is perfect for our Bala Tabayit here, is because she helps women give birth. Is we're told in the Gemara that when the fetus is in the mother's womb, an angel comes and teaches it the whole Torah. And then when the baby is born, remember, angel touches the baby here and it forgets everything. But there's a part of the Gemara that most people don't quote. It says that there is a candle lit in the womb the whole nine months. And we're talking on a symbolic level, but that there's a candle lit. So just like when the baby is touched here and it forgets everything, when it comes into the world, that light, in a sense, is hidden away. Just like the, the Torah that it learned is hidden away. So now, you see a pattern starting to form here? When Moshe Rabbeinu comes down with the second Luchot, so it says that he came down, his face was beaming light. Beaming. And the people were afraid to look at him. So do you remember what the Torah says? Right? They made a, like a... a um, Hockey mask. Yeah. <laughs> they made a covering for his... A veil for his face 
so that the people didn't have to look at this light. It was too, it was too <clears throat> awesome. So again, light is, is revealed and hidden. We're told on the first day of Pesach, this is a Torah from the Arizal, on the first day of Pesach, a Seder night, a tremendous spiritual light bursts into the world. That's what we feel Seder night. It's, there's this spiritual light just bursting into the world. And then the Ari teaches that as soon as the first day passes, the light is taken away. And then we have to work for it for seven weeks, counting the Omer, to reach it again on Shavuos night. So over and over again, light is revealed and then hidden away. Not taken away, but hidden away. Hidden means it can be accessed. If it was taken away, that means you're not going to see it again. It's, it's, just, it's hidden away. The menorah, when the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple, so they hid the menorah away. It's still hidden. It's still hidden under the Temple Mount or in a series of caves that at least be begins at the Temple Mount. <clears throat> and then one more that we'll mention is uh, the most enigmatic of all of them is in the vision of Ezekiel, which is the, the most mystical part of the Tanakh, that there is a word used two or three times called Chashmal, from which we get the modern translation of Chashmal. But it's very hard to translate what this Chashmal was. It's usually translated as a translucent kind of blue light. But obviously an awesome kind of light. But when you look at the word Chashmal, it's explained in the Gemara, Chashmal is, is maybe the paradigm of, of paradox. Chash means silent. Mal means speaking. Mila, a word, Mila, comes from Mal. So Chash Mal is silent speech. This is what Simon and Garfunkel called the sounds of silence. They didn't make it up. They didn't make it up, and where they probably got it from is when Eliyahu, a Navi, ran away for his life and he was in the in the Sinai, he went to Mount Sinai. <clears throat> and God first well, he thought God was appearing to him in an earthquake and in thunder and lightning and in a huge wind. But each time it says but God was not in the earthquake. He was not in the noise. He was not in the wind. And then it says Eliyahu heard a still, silent voice. And he knew that that was God. So this is the paradox. 
Now, <clears throat> like I say, each one of these we could actually develop, you know, to a much greater degree. But I wanted to establish, you see the pattern here. There's a paradox. Anytime you talk about light, the sages picked up on a paradox of revelation and hiddenness. And especially in, in the word chashmal itself, there is the, not just revealing and hiding, but a, 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 a true paradox, silent speech. So the important thing is that the sages picked up on this. In a later part, we're going to delve deeper to see what Kabbalah says, what is the nature of this paradox. But what I want to do now is go straight to science and see how, we'll call it right on, the sages were. They, they, they picked up on this nuance about light that was only revealed in the last century in scientific terms. And we'll start that it's maybe 150 years ago, the first of a series of uh, discoveries began, this is playing words, throw light on the nature of light. That's a, what is it called, a double entendre? <laughs> so, um, and it was Maxwell who realized that the, the force that was called electricity was actually the same force that was magnetism. Until 150 years ago, they were, they were like apples and oranges. What, what does magnetism have to do with electricity? And Maxwell was able to establish that they're actually the same force. They're just different sides of the coin. Now this already uh, sheds light on the, para the paradox here. Can you repeat that last point again? Yeah. What Maxwell said? That he discovered that electricity and magnetism, you know, that which makes a magnet pull metal to it, mm -hmm. is the exact same force of electricity. But no one could see that until 150 years ago. It wasn't understood. So he coined the term electromagnetic force. And now we, we, we talk to them as, as one force. And then it was discovered part of our revealed and hidden, that light is actually only a very small band on the electromagnetic energy band. The others are X-rays, ultra rays, micro rays, all these different things are all, electric, all part of the electromagnetic. And light is actually a very small band. As we'll see in a minute, light are waves. 
and the human eye and brain can only we can't we don't see x-rays we don't see micro rays but we do see light but they're all the same energy it's all the same energy then it was discovered that light when they started delving deeper and deeper light is a wave and we don't we don't see the waves of light but just like we don't see sound waves but that is what what is happening right now from my lips to your ears it's happening through waves that's how it's getting to you so first they discovered that light was a wave this was a tremendous discovery that's how light works in waves and frequencies and the whole band of electromagnetic has to do with waves and frequencies x-rays we just can't pick up on those frequencies with our limited physical senses but we know let's say in the animal kingdom as far as sound waves so we also only hear a small band but sometimes you get that ringing in your ear where you hear this high pitch so it's known that many animals hear much greater waves, uh, sound waves, <coughs> much greater, and, and they actually communicate that we can't hear them. There are many animals that communicate and we don't even hear them. So this is the same with light. Light is a wave. But now comes the the biggie that then it was discovered that light is also a particle and this is where we get the expression quantum physics because it was described that light travels a quanta is a photon our individual photons light is actually a series of individual particles of photons but then science had a a paradox how can light be a wave and also a particle in scientific terms ad until today science does not understand how light could be both a wave and a particle this can't be uh, 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 emphasized enough that we have learned to an incredible degree to harness this force but science doesn't understand it it's an amazing thing our entire world really is based on I mean we think of the computer okay so now you have you know, waveless computers, but this everything is hooked up to the grid of electricity. As we'll see later, how much of healing is now connected to this same force. And yet, science really does not understand how light works. And it's all based on this paradox of, of it being a wave and a particle. But then they found 
It's not just light. All of matter exhibits the same paradoxical phenomenon that in every atom you have the atom acting as a wave and a particle. Now the amazing thing is it, it does light does not do it at the same time. So if you if a scientist tries to measure light in a way that it will act like a wave, then it will act like a wave. This is also mind-boggling. And if it's measured to act like a particle, it will act like a wave. And they, they don't they truly do not understand it. Can you say the speed of light? How do they measure that? Well, the speed of, well that they do it by um, how did they uh, originally establish it? And is it a wave? Is it a particle? Um, I think the way they did it is by shooting particles through no no because Einstein already established before they had these fancy um, what are they called particle smashers where they can now shoot particles close to the speed of light? It's a good question. I don't have the answer exactly, because Einstein already established the speed of light. So I'm not sure how they established it, but they've, they've tested it like a million times, and it's <coughs> that's exactly where we're going next, is now that we have this <coughs> paradox, so now we understand when electricity was, was called in Hebrew, chashmal, this is like one of the best translations ever <laughs> of, of, a, of a concept into modern Hebrew. Because that captures the, the paradox of light. That's what captures it. And then Einstein went further, E equals mc squared. In the equation, E equals energy, equals mass times velocity of light squared. The C is light squared. <clears throat> but, so what does this equation mean in practical terms? Energy is matter, and matter is energy. Now, we're going to see how much this has to do with light. Because this comes as close as you can to the <coughs> teaching that you've probably heard a thousand times <coughs> in different Torah classes. That one of the, let's say, goals of Torah and mitzvah is to unify physical and spiritual. If you've heard that once, you've heard it a thousand times, right? To unify physical and spiritual. This is one of the most ancient Jewish teachings that there is. But it took Einstein to reveal in scientific terms how, how true that is. Even though energy and matter do, isn't exactly physical and spiritual, but it's, 
it's like the same paradigm. The same paradigm. You know, just this table is matter. It's physical. But when you look at it through a, a scientist's eyes or through a, a microscope, it's whirling energy. That's all it is. It is nothing more than a series of atoms that bind themselves together. And it's the binding of the force between the atoms which creates the, sound, the appearance of solidity. There really is no solidity. There is only a series of atoms. And there are spaces between the atoms. In fact, tremendous space. But what makes anything solid is the force that connects the atoms. That creates solidity. That's what creates matter. But physicality and spirituality is saying the same thing. That we try to infuse physicality with spirituality because in in the spark excuse me in the essence of physicality is a spark of spirituality it's e equals mc squared even in the particles even if they're not bound together that particles are still physical meaning meaning where is the binding of the spirit in e equals mc squared where is the binding of something non-physical. Ah, up here. And that's what we'll get to. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's up here. The, the, <clears throat> that which turns anything from physical into spiritual is what we call kavana, is, is called consciousness. Now, in E equals MC squared, and we're not going to delve into this greatly, but the, the key point is light. Light is the bridge between matter and energy in the equation. And we're going to see that that is what the, 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 the definition, the purpose, and the function of light is to connect the physical and the spiritual. And then one last thing about light. There's two other things that we're going to see that Einstein established. One is that light is a constant. In the theory of relativity, this is an amazing thing. Everything is relative to light. Because light is the only thing that is a constant. Now we're going to see in a little while how close this is to something that's in the Tanakh. It says, Ani Hashem Lo Shaniti. I am God. I have not changed. So we see in that statement also a paradox. Because nothing moves God. 
But God moves everything else. How do you spell the word for changed, or I do not change the word that you use? Shiniti shin nun yud taf yud. Shin nun yud taf taf yud. Yud. Okay, thank you. Where is that from? Um, go to my website, to our word search. Who asked? Me. Oh, go to our word search and just put in the word Shiniti, and it will tell you in one second. What's your website? Um, Thetrugmans.com. Okay. I mean, it's in the book. I just don't know it by heart. Uh, I, believe, I believe it's in one of the Nadim, one of the prophets. Ani Hashem lo Shiniti. So light... Now we're starting to get into the nature of light here. That light, everything is relative to light, but light doesn't change. Light is a constant. And that's why light is connected to time. Because as matter increases in velocity, what happens? What happens to time? Slows down. If you had a clock on a baseball, and you could throw that baseball at half the speed of light, so it would it would have a different time than Earth time. As it approaches light, it slow continually slows down. And then the most mystical thing, Rob Ginsburg said, the most mystical concepts in the world right now are coming out of, out of physics. Because at the speed of light, no time passes. Now this, this is scientifically established, but it boggles the mind. At the speed of light, no time passes passes. Or, of course it doesn't make sense, but all of, <laughs> all of science today actually is counterintuitive. That's, see, in the, in, up, to a, up to Einstein, the world made sense scientifically. Since Einstein, when you describe how the world really works, it, it, it's, it's it doesn't jive with our logic. It's counterintuitive. But they proved it. It's true. Now, this is so important because what, what we're establishing here is that light is paradoxical. And it's the linchpin of understanding modern science is, is light. The whole, what's called the space-time continuum, it all has to do with light, how science understands light. But we're going to see that spiritually also, that ultimately, everything is only the light of God. And now, like I said, there's much more. But now we're going to we're going to look at the word for light and start plugging all of this in. Hebrew is called Lashon Kodesh, holy language, because 
the world is created from Hebrew letters. Just like a scientist would say the world is, is built from atoms, molecules, particles, chemicals, elements. We say the world is made of letters. And this is never so true in the description of the seven days of creation. The world is, the, the, the creation comes through the Hebrew letters. So when it says, and God said, let there be light, what it means here and in every other case is light is Aleph, Vav, Resh. That is what light is. In other words, Aleph, Vav, and Resh are not symbols of sounds that we make to make a word or. And then we attach all kinds of understandings of light to these sounds represented by, by these letters. That's how most other languages work. But Hebrew, the entity of light is created by God speaking in Aleph, above and Resh into reality. That is what light is. So here what we see is the Aleph itself is called the letter of paradox. Because the shape of the Aleph is a Yud above and a Yud below. Even though this doesn't look exactly like a Yud, according to tradition it is a Yud. With a Vav simultaneously connecting and separating these two realities. Now here we have we have a, an incredible understanding because what is the number of Aleph? One. One. But in the shape of the Aleph you have the seed of duality already. You already have the seed of all dualities in the oneness itself. What is one of the meanings of the of the letter of the word Aleph? Aluf is one. Leader. It's a leader. Aleph. You have to change the vowels a little bit. A thousand. Aleph, which means a thousand. Here's the paradox again. In the Torah, there's no there's no number bigger than a thousand. They talk about many thousands, but they don't have millions and billions and trillions. Thousand is the, like the biggest number. So here again, the same paradox. The number is one, but its meaning is a, a thousand. So this is the reality of the world, which is very paradoxical. That it's all one. Shema Yisrael Hashem Adokeinu Hashem Echad. And yet, what we see is just plurality. Now here's to answer you also. So how do we see the oneness? Up here. Because what we see is plural. We do not really see oneness. We see we just see and sometimes it's very disjointed, right? When we perceive reality, it's like, whoa, right? There's too much happening here. Right? You have that experience, right? There's just too much happening here. That's just in a little room or something. Now, can you imagine 10 billion galaxies? Like there's a lot happening. 
you go inside of an atom, there's more happening there than we can imagine. Every year, they're naming more and more particles that they didn't see. I don't, I'm not sure about some of, some of us a little bit older. When we went to school, all they knew about was the proton, the neutron, and the electron. That's all they knew about. Now, if you take a college course, there are, it's called the alphabet of particles. There are so many, and every year they're discovering new ones. So this is, we can go on, but this is the whole paradox we've been talking about right here. Now, it's very, very important, though, that an Aleph is the, the first letter of the majority of names of God begin with an Aleph. But even within the Aleph, you have the Yud that begins Yud Ke Vav Ke. And also, you have the two Yuds, and above, Yud equals 10, and 10 and 6 is 26. So you also have the Yud Ke Vav Ke here. But also, Adam begins with an Aleph. So that's the secret of man being created in the image of God. Is that Adam in, in itself, because it, Adam is really male-female. But then you take Adam and you also divide it. Aleph, Dam. Dam is what? Blood. Blood. What, what does that represent in a human being? <laughs> Life. Physical. Physical. The body. And the Aleph represents the soul, the divine soul. Here you have the spiritual and physical in man itself. Could it represent consciousness? Also. Okay. Aleph, consciousness, light, all of that, the soul. Okay, we could say more, but all, everything we've set up to now, establishing the paradox of light, of physical and spiritual, Remember, these are all the dualities in the world. Especially, this is, this is the particle and the wave. This is, this is where it's coming from. Now here, you have the Vav. Now, we, we began to talk about the connection of light and time. In the Torah, when you put a Vav before a verb... Not in modern Hebrew, only in biblical Hebrew. What happens? It changes the tense. So if you have a word in the past, but there's a vav in front of it, you read it as the future. Right? Like Vayomer Elohim. Vayomer is in, in the yo is in the future. So but when you read it Vayomer, you read it in the past. So this Vav, it's called Vav HaHipuch, the Vav that can switch past to future and future to past. Now this is exactly what was revealed about light. That at the speed of light, there is, is no time. 
past, present, and future are all happening simultaneously. And that's how, that's how we understand what is called God's omnipotence. God's omnipotence is based in the fact that for God, again, this bends the mind, is the future is the same as the past. So that's when we say, Vahu haya, Vahu hoveh, Vahu yiyeh So we usually translate, he was, he is, and he will be. But you go one step further, it means he was, he is, and he will be all at the same time. Because that's how we describe it. God is above time and space. Time is a created phenomenon. God is above time. So, see, we get glimpses of this. We get glimpses of it when we say, um, I was at, whatever, I was at this wedding, and it just, it, it, it was so high, it seemed like it was going forever. As we can experience these states of consciousness. Or sometimes we say, after a summer, let's say you went away to Israel for two months, or maybe you're here now for two months, you'll get back home and, and you'll say, it was like a blink of an eye. Where did it go? Where is it? Where did it go? Time is very relative. This is all the secret of the bug. Now, we also have something that's uh, very fascinating, but we can't go too far into it, is what is the number of vav? Six. Six. Six represents space. Why? It's because space, conceptually, is a big cube. In other words, we're surrounded by the four directions, above and below. And all of space is going in all six directions. This is the secret of shaking lulav. The God is above, he's below, and he's in every direction. He's all around. But all around is symbolized by six. The six planes of the cube. Now, listen to how awesome this is. That what did Einstein reveal? That time is also a dimension, and there is what's called the space-time continuum. Space and time are not two different things. They're not apples and oranges. Space and time are intrinsically tied together. In other words, just this is—it's a simple example. If there was no time, everything would be frozen in space. In other words, time is the medium through which we move in space. Did you get that? It's actually quite simple, but when you think about it... It seems counterintuitive. It is very counterintuitive. But if there was no time... 
then space could not move. My hand could not move. My hand could only move because there is a continuum of time that allows here, now it's here, and now it's here. Well, if there was no time, it couldn't happen. So Einstein revealed time-space continuum. That's in the above, because the above is the essence of time, and it's the essence of space. And what is that which connects time and space, according to modern science? Light. Light is the is what connects it together. The Reish. So, first, one thing, and then a very important idea that we haven't actually said yet. It was always thought that light will always travel in a straight line. That if you shoot a beam of, of light into space, it would theoretically travel forever in a straight line. Again, until Einstein. <clears throat> and Einstein proved that the time-space continuum is curved. Even though we're talking about distances beyond anything we can like, even imagine, but time and space bends. And this is hinted to in the Reich. Now this is not a small discovery. You say, well, okay, so it bends. But this is how Einstein explained what gravity is. Newton got hit on the head by an apple. And he figured out that the same force that makes an apple, allows an apple to fall from a tree, is the same force that keeps the earth going around the sun. That's the same thing that Maxwell did between electricity and magnetism. He had like, now listen to this um, play in words, he had a flash of insight. And we'll see how true this is in one second. He had a, a flash of insight that these two forces were the same. No one saw it before. But Newton never described how does gravity work. It just that is gravity. But how does it work? And Einstein revealed that how gravity works. And I'll never, I'll never forget when I came to understand this. It was on Shushan Purim, and usually I always come into your shrine for Shushan Purim. How, how can you not? I, I'm outside of Jerusalem, so I have, I had my Purim already. I always come in for Shushan Purim, but <laughs> but this Purim, uh, <laughs> I woke up. I was <laughs> I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so everyone in my house went to Yerushalayim I really couldn't make it <laughs> so I had just gotten the book by Brian Greene called The Elegant Universe which is if, if you haven't read this and you want to understand more of what I'm talking about believe me, I don't know that much about physics but 
I've taken a tremendous interest in it, but you must read this book, The Elegant Universe, because he really describes in, in layman's terms everything we're talking about. But he, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and reading this, and he describes what <laughs> gravity is, and I got it. Like, I, I got it. And I remember sitting in my chair and said, like, this is like, like the highest Purim experience. It was like, like the light bulbs were going off in my head because I had been trying to understand it. And I read a bunch of books and I, I, I didn't get it. It's actually quite simple. Quite simple. This matter, this is a little bit of an aside, but matter has um, density to it. That density creates a magnetic pole called gravity. And every, every person also has a gravitational... Well, sometimes, this is very deep, sometimes you feel pulled towards a person. So two things are happening. There's a physical... But there is also, if a, the person's thoughts are also actually creating real waves. And a person picks up on this. And also sometimes a person is repulsed by an energy. But what happens is the sun is the biggest um, entity of matter in our solar system. And so what causes all of the planets to go around the sun is this pull. Now the whole solar system is, is also being pulled by bigger suns in our galaxy. And our galaxy is being pulled by bigger galaxies. It's, just, it's, it's virtually an endless. But what happens is the following is this pull bends space. That's how we all started this, that light curves. Because what gravity is, very simply, is curvature of space. So in other words, the Earth goes around the Sun just like... It's the only thing I could think of. If you think of... Um, what is the... the uh, the gambling thing with the ball going around? Roulette. roulette. How the ball is going around the roulette is because the roulette is kind of curved and it's being held until it slows down and then it, will, it drops down. That's what's happening. The sun is curving all the space around it and it creates a orbit. And that's why we're going around the sun. How does that affect time? Ah, so, see, Newton thought that gravity works instantaneously. So he said that if the, the sun, again, he didn't understand this. He just knew that, that the sun was exerting a gravitational force on the earth, but he didn't know how it worked. So he said that if the earth would, the sun would blow up, 
the earth would, let's say the earth is going around and it blows up, it would stop going in a circle and it would just go out into space. Is it, gravity happens instantaneously. Now, now you'll see how important light is. So, but what did Einstein say? Said, no, gravitation is connected to the time-space continuum. And the time-space continuum is hooked in to the speed of light. So it takes eight and a half minutes for a beam of light from the sun to get to the earth. So Einstein said it would not happen instantaneously that the earth would careen off into space. It would take eight and a half minutes because of the speed of light that tells you how much light is the linchpin of everything until the, the, um, the result of the end of this gravitational pull would be felt on Earth. Okay? But now we're going to say something really important. The Reish is Rosh, means head. It means intellect. The Rosh means intellect. Now, this is very important. When we talk about the light of God, or drawing light into the world, spiritual light, the light bulb going off in our head, being enlightened, seeing the light, question is, what are we talking about? Are we talking, we're not really talking about a physical light. So what we're talking about is consciousness. That is the race of ore. Obviously, because light comes in the world because of God's consciousness. But it is only perceived through our consciousness. Remember the first letter of the Aleph is Aleph is Elohim, Akia, Adni, Kale, all these names of God beginning with the Aleph and Adam, because we're in the image of God. So as, as we're going to see in the second part, the God the connection between God and light is what we call consciousness. Is that the same as perception? Yes. Well, spiritual perception. Spiritual perception. So could you break down or as Aleph, consciousness, Vav, connected to Resh, the head of the body? Consciousness attached to the head of the body? You could, yes. Okay. You could say that the, the, the consciousness of God connected to the Vav to the consciousness of man. Curved to the... Okay. Okay? Because that's how consciousness comes in, is through the head. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is very, yeah. Sorry, how does the Reish connect consciousness to light? Okay, because, again, Rosh stands for head. Also in Hebrew, the word for clarification. This, in, in Hasidut, this is one of the most important words, is birur. Clarifying reality has two Reishes. Now, the idea of consciousness has to do with the, the race. 
And the resh is the head. And now what we're defining for the first time is that perceiving the light of God means reaching a certain consciousness. That's what it is. How do we reach this consciousness? Through learning Torah. Torah. Through doing mitzvah. Through davening. Through meditating. Through music, as we're going to do right now. Through music. Through nature. But the idea is we have to, is we have an animal soul also. Remember, Adam. We have a part of us that is drawing us into the physical. And then we also have a divine soul that is reaching towards the light. That's why, and I'll connect this to Hanukkah. So remember, we're just setting the stage here. And, and next week we're going like, to plug all of this into the actual Hanukkah lights. But the idea is of, of a light is it's, light is always reaching upward. Always reaching upward and it's moving. Sometimes it's stationary, but eventually it starts to move. It starts to move because the soul is trying to uplift itself. And this is what's called lifting our consciousness. Now here we have also a beautiful thing. In the Sefer Yitzirah, the Sefer Yitzirah spoke about five dimensions. Until Einstein, we talked about, scientifically we talked about three. The three of space, correct? A cube has breadth, length, and width. Three dimensions of space. Height, excuse me. Three dimensions of space. Einstein came and said, time is also conceived as a dimension. But Sefer Yitzira says, all of reality is called Shana, <coughs> oh, excuse me, Olam, Shana, and Nefesh. Olam, Shana, Nefesh. Olam means world. That means space, the physical world. Shana means year, which means time. And nefesh means consciousness, soul. So now we see that in the last hundred years, science has now seen that there's really space and time. And without getting into it, the cutting edge of quantum physics now, this is so mind-blowing. The cutting edge of quantum physics is starting to deal with consciousness. Yes. And I can't get into it. You can, you can Google. Google quantum physics and consciousness. Or what the bleep. Yes, yes. Yeah. What the bleep do we know? That's also a very good one. What they're finding out is two things, and then, and, then we, and then we have to go on, is that it appears that individual atoms have some sort of consciousness 
and can make choices. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. You have to read about it. That atoms have a certain level of consciousness and choice-making. Okay? Mind-blowing. You'll read about it. But the other thing that affects us is the Baal Shem Tov said, think good and it will be good. Right? Think good and it will be good. Gam Zulatova. It's also for the good. A dream goes after its interpretation. In other words, there's, there's a strand of thought in Jewish thought. Reality is what you make of it. If you see something to be good, it's going to be good. Even if someone next to you is going like this, right? If you want to interpret it as good, then that creates your reality. Hopefully we'll get to the, the light and the healing. How much of healing has to do with just a good attitude? The will to live, the will to be healthy. How much... Uh, effect it has on our health. So quantum physics is starting to see that without human consciousness, human consciousness, there cannot be a creation. This is mind-blowing. What does it say in the Gomorrah? Every person should see it as if God created the whole world for them. Yeah, Bishwili Bara Olam. So what did you say with that human consciousness creation couldn't exist? Yeah. You have to realize like it's it is so counterintuitive, it's so mind blowing, but it's catching up. Oh, that's why I wanted to say this. So you can see this like this. These are the three dimensions of space. How many lines create the Aleph? Three. The fourth dimension, just one line. And the fifth, consciousness. You get that? Space, time, consciousness. Olam, Shana, Nefesh. Truly mind mind blowing. Mind bending. Mind bending, yes. <laughs> mind bending. Okay, so what we're gonna do now is everyone in their own way are gonna take these ideas. And especially I would suggest thinking about Aleph, Vav and Raish. How the Aleph is God and man. <coughs> in the image of God that ultimately science is telling us the like I said the linchpin of all understanding of physical reality is based on light but spiritually everything is based on the light of God I'm going to say one other thing now an amazing thing. It says in the Zohar that matter is thickened light. Slow down. 
This is the expression that uses. Matter is thickened light. What do they want to say? Everything is... There is nothing other than the light of God. <clears throat> and what we perceive as matter is thickened light. This is exactly how science describes the, the relationship between energy and matter. And when, you, and when you study the Big Bang, we're told that in the beginning, everything, and that's why in the second sentence of the Torah, even before light, it says that there was water. It doesn't say that water was created. It says there, there was tov avahu, the choshech apnei hatahom, so science now describes that in the beginning everything was so hot all of the forces of the universe it was like soup it was like hot soup only as the universe started to cool could, could light actually come into existence and individual atoms and molecules. In other words, matter was a process of the cooling of creation. That's exactly what the Zohar said. The Zohar said... Of changing life from, from gas to liquid yeah, to solid. Yeah. Well, here, the, the, the gas, it was just... It was just um, they, sometimes they call it a plasma. They call it exquisitely hot plasma. And actually matter couldn't, it was just, it was formless. And only as it cooled off. So, this is, this is the content, when we talk about the light of God, it's to actually understand that there is nothing else other than the light of God. What we see as forms and physicality and matter is still the light of God, but it's just thickened. It's going at different speeds. So. Yeah, it's just thickened light. And also we can think about this idea of being above time, because we, as being in the image of God, we can experience this. We do experience it. But the more we develop our consciousness through prayer, meditation, doing mitzvahs, learning Torah, the stronger our consciousness gets and the more of God's light we can perceive. And that's how we're going to take this into Hanukkah. Because remember, the first thing we said is the most important thing about Hanukkah is to sit around your Hanukkah candles meditating on the light. Because, because how many times do we stop to do that? And these are some of the most precious moments of the year. Truly. That, you know, I'm not guaranteeing it like every moment of staring at your candles, but if you do it and you're a little bit disciplined about it and you learn enough about light and about Hanukkah, and you know what to think about and what to meditate on, then it's, it's like 
The best of the best. It's the best of the best. So I'm just going to play very soft, meditative music, and everyone will go to whatever place they need to go. But the idea is to, is to meditate on, on light.
Someone just handed me a note that um, the learning tonight should be a refuah shlema for Shalom Yitzhak ben Chana Hinda. And Moshe Mordechai ben Esther. Have a refuah shlema. Alexander ben Gittel. Have a refuah shlema. Everyone who needs a refuah shlema. Okay. Now we're changing gears here. Where, where ultimately does this paradox of light come from? If the Torah is telling us that light is paradoxical, and science is telling us that light is paradoxical, so we need to understand where is it coming from? So, we're going to answer in the very essence of God is paradox. Now this is not easy to understand because our cardinal statement of faith is Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad God is one. Where, what room is there for paradox? God is one. Um. I don't know if you have an answer to this question, but I'm finding myself very overwhelmed with these various thoughts of doubt. Um, and I don't know how to like, get a little more comfortable with I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure what the problem is. Breathe. We are definitely talking about very deep um, spiritual, um, incredibly important concepts here to understand <coughs> what life is all about. And we're about to take it to one more step, though, here, <coughs> because not only do we say God is one, but we say in the Torah, Ein od. There is nothing other than the oneness of God. Ein od milvado. There's nothing other than Him. And then we have the idea, God is called Sovev kol olmin. He surrounds all worlds. The Malay kol olmin. And He fills all worlds. So all of these are like, everything is God. Everything is the light of God. So you say, so where is the paradox? But interestingly enough, we have a few other statements that lead us towards this paradox. Now, first of all, we, we saw in the Aleph itself that in the oneness there is plurality. We have the seeds of two. That's why the Torah begins with a bet. Because as soon as you have creation, you have what appears to be a dualistic world. Now, we believe that there's a oneness behind all of it. But this is true. It is very paradoxical. It's very paradoxical. Why would... I mean, it's paradoxical why God would create a world in the first place. When you get into actual philosophy, mm-hmm. like why is God creating the world in the first place? But we see 
that there's a, an equation. One creates two in order to be one. God is one. Now this also, like many things I'm saying tonight, needs a lot more time than we can give it. But God is one. He creates a dualistic world in order that we should know that God is one. Now look at the creation of man. God created Adam, male and female. But they were one being. He separates man and woman as far as physically. And then the very next Pasuk says, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife in order that they should be one flesh. One becomes two in order to become one. So here we see the, the, the seeds of the paradox already. So along with all of the statements of God's oneness, but we also have, Rashi brings it, when, when God reveals the 13 mitos of Rachamim to Moshe, the 13 principles of mercy. So it says, you can't see my face and live. So I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock and I will pass before you and I'll like cover that you can't see my face. But it says God says there, there's makomiti, there's a place with me. So Rashi says he brings what it says that who hamakom shalolam he is the place of the world, but the world is not his place. And that's like, you know, a perfect <laughs> like brain teaser. He is the place of the world, but the world is not his place. In the Kabbalah, there's an expression, mati velo mati. He you can translate it a number of ways. He's touching, but he's not touching. Or he's there, but he's not there. Mati velo mati. Simultaneously. We know that the word for world is olam. And everyone comments that the verb form of olam is he'elem. means to hide. Remember the first thing we established with the revelation and the hiding? So what do we know about God? All we know about God is what is revealed, what He reveals of Himself in this world. That's what, that's what we know. That's why Rambam says if, if you want to know about God, look at, look at the world. Understand the world and you'll start to understand God, because that, that's all we have. That's all we have. But at the same time, God is totally hiding in the world. The Maggid of Mezrich called this the divine game of hide-and-seek. 
That's what he called it. The divine game of hide and seek. So, so the, the word for world itself is a total revel. Whatever we can know about godliness. And yet at the same time, it's totally hiding. Now, we say the same thing about light. Ota or Kasalma. He wears light like a garment. Now we're going to see, actually we say this, a man says this when he puts on a talus. It's Tehilim, no? Yeah. Ota or Kasalma. Nota Shemaim Kiyiria. And he stretches the heavens like a curtain. But this is such an important few words. Ota or Kasalma. He, he wears light like a garment. So that's when we talk about everything being the light of God. This is like the, the best metaphor. Now this is very important. That in a sense, Kabbalah, Hasidut, the Gemara itself, established that there's no better metaphor for godliness than light. And the question is why? Because just like God is everywhere, but is not, where is he? Right? He's the place of the world, but the world is not his place. He's there, mati below mati. So physical light is the best metaphor we have for it. Because it's everywhere, yet you can't, you can't grasp it. It's a totally ethereal. <coughs> so light, already we, we went over how, how it's treated in, in, in Chumash, but in, in the prophets, so light became the metaphor for, for all goodness, for joy, spirituality, life, hope, love. There's a very beautiful thing I learned from Rav Ginsburg. The Rashi Tevot, the acronym of Or HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the light of the Holy One, blessed be He, is Ahava. The four letters. Or Hakadosh Barakhu is Ahava, is love. And so Kabbalah and Hasidut just continued the, the the traditions from the prophets, from the Gomorrah, from the sages of using light as the the best metaphor for talking about God. But now we're going to go one step further. Like we're going to get like, kind of like almost <laughs> as deep as you can get here. <clears throat> we have the expression Ein Sof, which usually is translated the infinite 
nature of God. The Ein Sof. But we also have an expression, the Or Ein Sof. The light of Ein Sof. So, like, you'll take notes on this and you'll think about it in great depth later. I'm just going to present it to you. Because what are we trying to establish? We're trying to get to the essence of the paradox of light. Because if light, again, is perceived in the Tanakh and the sages as paradoxical, and science is established as paradoxical, and then we establish that light is the best metaphor for God, so then, and we've established that there's a, a level of paradox within the very essence of God, the two expressions which I didn't bring up is that God is sometimes called Nosei HaFachim He carries opposites because what, what is a paradox? we've used this word all night but a paradox is two mutually exclusive ideas that they, they, they can't like, coexist from a logical point of view, from a logical point of view, Judaism embraces paradox. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chaim. These and these are the words of the living God. Usually, two opinions that are absolutely opposite, and the and, and the one that we're we're going to see next week. The Shammai says that we light the candles, we start with eight, and then seven, and then six, and then five. And Hillel says you go up, as, as, as different as you can be, as opposite as you can be. The world usually looks at paradox as unsolvable and as threatening. Paradox is threatening. Torah doesn't at all. Torah embraces paradox. Why? Because the very essence of God is is the secret of paradise. No seafachim. He carries opposites. And the other expression is nimna hanimnaot, which is translated as paradox of paradoxes. That God is the paradox of paradoxes. Nimna hanimnaot. So the question is asked, it's, it's, it's a, a tremendously, really complicated question, is before God created the world, we say all there was was the Ein Sof, or the Or Ein Sof. So the question that is, is asked in Kabbalah is, this light, this infinite light, is it the essence of God or is it a creation of God? Now, it's, it's, it's very problematic because if each one has a strong point and a weak point, if the Ain Self is an emanation, then its strong point is that One second. That since creation is about change, and we say, Ani Hashem lo shiniti, 
I am God, I have not changed. So if creation happens through the, the agency of the or in self, that would answer how, how creation can change. Because the, remember that matter is thick and light. It does change. So if Ein Sof is an emanation, so it's not the essence of God. We're not saying the essence of God has changed. It's an emanation has changed. But what's the weak point? Remember, you have to take notes here and think about it later. What is the weak point? How can anything be infinite other than God? By definition, how can you have or ain't self that's infinite if it's only an emanation? Then there's something infinite that's other than the essence of God. That's a problem. Now we'll reverse it. Now we'll say the ain't self is the essence of God. So the strong point is that would answer how, because we say that everything in creation comes from God. So since the or ain't self is the essence of God, then the answer is that it's not, it's not something else is creating. Because if you say that the or ain't self is an emanation, then you have something other than God creating. An emanation is creating. But the weak point here is, if it's the essence of God, how does it not change? So the Ari, to answer this, and I know this is a little bit thick here, <laughs> but the Ari, if you know about the Sfirot, so he explained that the highest of the Sfirot, Keter, is a bridge. That the high point of Keter is still the essence of God. The lower point of Keter is already an emanation of God. So Keter is holding the two opposites. It's a bridge between infinite and finite. That's how he answered it. But I'm, I'm saying all of this, really, to get to this next point. That the Alter Rebbe, when I finish this, if you still have a question. So the Altar Rebbe explained it beautifully with the metaphor of light. And that's why he explained that we can use the terms Ein Sof and Or Ein Sof interchangeably. Because he explained like this, how can it be that in Keter, it's like infinite, but it's not infinite. It's partly an essence. It's partly an emanation. It's like, it's like difficult. So he said, if you take light, and he used it in the Tanya, and he explains it, the light of the sun. He explains the sun when the light is in the sun. It's not emanating. You only have a, what he calls a ma'or, the um, supplier of light, the giver of light. 
So when the light is in the sun, there is no difference between the ma'or and the or, between the giver of light and the light itself. It's, it's, it's one and the same. Once the light begins to shine, and this works for physical light also in science, that light becomes the, the bridge between infinite and finite, between light and matter, between spiritual and physical. Why? Because when the light leaves the sun, the light has no independent reality of its own other than its connection to the source of light. In other words, when a person makes something, that thing, in a sense, is like different. You know, you make a glass, you make a car, you make a, whatever, a picture. That is, it's an expression of you, but it's not like you. It, it may be an expression of your essence, but it has another reality. You can hang the picture on the wall. I guess you can hang you on the wall too, but it won't feel so good. But light, light has no independent reality other than expressing the essence of the one who's emanating the light. So now listen to this next statement, because this is crucial. That makes it that light is both from God and of God. In other words, it's, it is an emanation, but it's also essence. So that, that's our, a paradox. You say, well, which, which one is it? So we're saying it's both. Simultaneously. It is from God and it is of God. Now, what approximates this very closely? Yeah. Um, just a question. But isn't everything really the essence of God? We're talking about is this the essence of God? Isn't everything, you know, even things that we think of as finite and separate, that's just an illusion? Like, why? No, so we have to, we, we answer, it's kind of yes and no, but it's mostly no. In other words, creation is an emanation of God. For that emanation to exist, it must have a spark of the essence of God. But it is not the essence of God. It is not the essence of God. The one thing, though, that's exactly what I was getting to, the only thing that we say is different than this is the neshama. Because the neshama is a chalak mamash is an actual part of God above. So that's the, and that's the connection that we're going to make. With, remember, we, we talked about the, that connecting to the light of God means developing your consciousness. Okay? But it is true to a certain extent that every created thing has some of the S or couldn't exist 
but still there is a division. That's in Kabbalah. That's how they describe the division between the, the, the highest world, Atzilut, and the three lower worlds. In the world of Atzilut, we say that the lights and the vessels are totally unified. There's no uh, division between them. But the, starting in the world of Bria, creation, there's already a separation between lights and vessels. So yes, everything... Now see, I mean, the truth is your, your, your question is very good because we said that everything is the light of God. So in a sense, everything is of God and from God. So in that sense, you're correct. But in a more technical sense, the only thing that shares that on the highest level is the neshama. Okay? So, this is like... like the, the pinnacle of what we're trying to understand here. Because what we're saying is physical light and spiritual light, the paradoxical nature of it is emanating from the, the very paradoxical nature of, of God, God's essence. <coughs> and that the light is the metaphor for that paradox. For that paradox. And really, the more you... I, I learned this from Rob Ginsburg. And he said like this. I'm sure you've heard this before, but you could say it a hundred times. It's so important. He said, you would think that the more Torah you learn, the more mitzvahs you do, the clearer everything would get. He said, the truth is, the more Torah you learn, and the closer you get to Hashem, the more paradoxical everything gets. Why? But, but not, again, not in a scary way. If you said that out in the world, it would like, whoa, that's terrible. But that's not how it's meant at all. Because, no se hafachim, God carries opposites. Now, when we walk through life, what are we doing our whole life? We're trying to balance opposites, right? Every moment we're like balancing different sets of opposites. So what is a, like a divine consciousness? Is learning how to do that. Because that is what life is about. We're constantly being thrust into situations of, of trying to deal with things that, at first appearance, like, how are we going to make peace of this? How are we going to get this together? How are we going to make this work? It's like, this doesn't work with this. But by applying our intellect, the light of our intellect, we... We, we do what God does. Or no se hafachim. Yeah. Because we have neshama, we actually affect the relationship between the, between the essence and ourselves. Our, 
our action, Hashem reflects what we are and what we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is one of the the great um, teachings of Torah and Kabbalah and Chassidut, that our actions, our speech and our thoughts actually affect the the upper worlds. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a cardinal Jewish concept. Theurgy. What? Theurgy. Yeah. Um, can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Um, I found it really... And I, I just have to tell everyone that like, the idea is that we, we started on time and we're asked to end on time. So before your question, just a few things. And so we, need to, we have like five more minutes. I, I was hoping to get to light and intellect, which we did. But we're going to do light and intellect, light and healing, and light and speech along with Hanukkah. We'll, we'll get it in. Is there is a sign-up sheet for Simchat Shlomo that hopefully went around? Did everyone sign it? Okay, so please send it around these last five minutes. This is so Simchat Shlomo, which has wonderful classes happening all of the time, with great teachers, can get a hold of you and let you know what's happening. Um, this uh, I'm the director of another organization, but we work with Simchat Shlomo like this, of Or Chadash. I have many of your emails, but many of you, I don't have your email. So if anyone would like to be on our email list so I could let you know of other things that we have happening, just write on a piece, if someone has a spare piece of paper, if I have your email already, you don't have to, but please add it very neatly so I can actually read it, um, your email. And we're also, it's very, very important that uh, to keep this yeshiva going, it takes money, and they ask for a 30 shekel contribution for the classes, or what you can afford. Um, but it goes for very, very good things. Everyone is encouraged to put what they can in the pushka, in the pushka right there. And um, I... I have to mention that some of my books are on the table there, and uh, a new musical CD that we just came out with, with the absolute best musicians in Israel, and they make great Hanukkah gifts. So everyone is, is welcome, and thank you so much for coming. I hope you come next week, and you can invite people also, because it will be crafted next week that if you miss this, it's an independent class in itself, but if you were here, you will really connect to what we do with it. Okay, I'm sorry. It's okay. Maybe I'll ask you the questions privately so that other people who want to go could go, or... Okay, we, we have another five minutes. Okay, All I right. just found it really fascinating that um, you were speaking about paradoxes, and you hardly ever men mentioned darkness at all. Oh. As, and... Um, one of my like eternal questions, uh -huh. especially about the creation of light, was that So that to me means that before the creation there was already darkness. Ah. That darkness was something right. that was always there. So, so with your permission, I'm not going to answer it, because that is really part of next week. To answer why are we, not why, but the the phenomenon that we're lighting Hanukkah candles at the darkest time of the year. Mm -hmm. And we're going to understand the relationship between darkness and light going back to creation. Cool. Okay? 
I was surprised you didn't mention the, the safrut, the, the Torah, white fire and dark fire. Is that also for next class? <laughs> There's only so much I could get. Remember, I, I, I warned everyone in the beginning that almost every point that we make could be developed greatly. So you're absolutely right. One of the, 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 the great opposites is the idea that the, the letters are black fire and white fire. That's in the shir with the oraganus. Yes. Like we didn't yeah. see, which is a dark light, yeah. not a spiritual light, not a light that is... Actually, we will deal with this next week. Yeah. Is it in your book? Go ahead. Yes. 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 I have two questions. The first was um, clarifying. You said that there were five dimensions of... Um, According to Sefer Yitzhak, yes. Yes, and three for space, one for time, and what were the two... One for nefesh. No, just one. One for nefesh. Olam, Shana, Nefesh. Olam means the three of space. Time is one, and Nefesh is one. Science has picked up on four of the five, and is about to pick up on the, the last one as well. Great. My 